This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, my name is Nathan Hobson, and I'm a host for the New Books in Japanese Studies podcast, a member of the New Books Network. Uh, today, I had the opportunity to interview uh, Chelsea Zendi Sheeter about her book, Coed Revolution, The Female Student in the Japanese New Left, and also uh, Naoko Koda about her book, uh, The United States and the Japanese Student Movement, 1948 to 1973, which is subtitled Managing a Free World. Uh, so it was a pleasure to have the two of them on together uh, to tackle a, a really some, an overlapping topic uh, from really different angles. So Koda, who is a scholar of diplomatic history and international relations, situates the student movement and student activism uh, within the larger context of the Cold War. Uh, among the historical uh, sort of historiographical contributions of managing a free world, uh, Koda pushes back the timeline of the student movement's origins to occupation era policies. Uh, she explores the role of subsequent American uh, cultural diplomacy uh, in combating the Marxist bent of major student organizations, and she spotlight, spotlights the uh, particular importance of Okinawa in the development and the ultimate neutralization of leftist activ- activism in post-war Japan. Uh, Koda in particular highlights the Kennedy administration's Kennedy Reichauer offensive, uh, so-called, uh, and its promotion of modernization theory among intellectuals on the one hand, and effective promotion of American sort of democratic ideals uh, in driving fissures into the new left. So in contrast, uh, Chelsea Zendi Sheeter in her book, Co-Ed Revolution, focuses on the really convoluted gender dynamics of the campus-based new left. Um, Sheeter is approaching this issue from a number of different angles. Uh, for example, the media manufactured public memory of a number of important women activists, such as Kampo Michiko, who was killed in demonstrations against renewal of the U.S.-Japan Security Treaty, uh, and also the titillating and terrifying figures of the so-called Gewalt Rosas of the student movement, uh, such as Kashiwazaki uh, Chieko. In addition to these analyses of both individual thinkers and their transformation into manipulable media media spectacles, uh, Sheeter also shows that the historiographical tendency to focus on the aggressive, violent masculinity of the new left in the late 1960s not only minimizes the role of women in the campus-based left, but does so in a way that repeats the internal gender politics of the movement itself, uh, because the masculine ideal of political action justified and masked the way that women were relegated to support and care work. Um, So these two books together are part of a wave of recent scholarship, uh, re-examining the student movement uh, and the new left in Japan from fresh angles, uh, including uh, Nick Kapoor, who was on the podcast before and who gets a shout out uh, during the podcast, um, and seeing the campus protests of the 1960s as both a distinctly Japanese history and also as part of a larger global history. Uh, 
So one note for listeners, um, as you you will hear in the interview, uh, there's a bit of an alphabet soup of organization names and abbreviations, proper nouns that get tossed around. You'll hear Zengakuren and Zenkyoto and Ampo and Seals and etc. I don't think they'll just detract from the interview. Um, I certainly hope they don't. Um, and in any case, they're very clearly explained in both books. Um, I should also say additionally that both authors asked in advance to be called their first names and also that we just jumped right into the interview. So here we go. Okay, well, uh, thank you both and uh, welcome to the podcast. This is exciting to have two people on uh, to talk about different books uh, and I'm, I'm excited to see how this uh, how this works out. So since this is a different a sort of a different format than we usually use, um, I want to take a second uh, for the two of you to set the scene for the audience and I'm hoping that that's going to make it easier uh, for everyone to follow along. So if you could please first give uh, a brief overview of what your book is about um, and talk about maybe some of the the major arguments or takeaways. Uh, and if we could start with uh, Naoko, that'd be great. Okay, Nathan, uh, thank you for inviting me to the podcast. And uh, my book, uh, my first aim was to study U.S. power and the U.S. America's Cold War in a specific local context. So I used the Japanese student movement as a lens to view U.S.-Japan Cold War relations. So I'm coming from a diplomatic history background and I really wanted to study uh, diplomatic history in a very different ways. And that's what I uh, started doing. And uh, um, I studied like, you know, America's uh, Cold War in Asia and how it's impacted Japanese student movement and the society as a large. And I define in the book that um, Cold War was not only about rivalry between the United States and the Soviet Union or two, uh, two inherently opposing ideologies, but also it was a complex, multi-layered, multi-sided conflict that intermingled with various international, regional, and local tensions involving a large diversity of state and non-state actors. So um, I think the um, understanding, of, understanding of America's power that contributed the consolidation of hegemony in the Pacific is a crucial uh, part of this, uh, my purpose of the book. And uh, because by the end of the Cold War, the majority of Japanese had come to accept the identification of Japan's interests with those of the United States. So I really uh, tried, what, what my book uh, tried to do was uh, do the diplomatic history and use the Japanese student as a lens to view uh, U.S.-Japan relations in the post-war world. Yes. Yeah, thank you. Um, Chelsea, how about you? Sure. Well, first of all, thank you so much. I'm a longtime listener, first-time caller. Um, <laughs> and uh, I'm just thrilled to be here with Naoko. Um, we've worked together. Uh, we've been on panels together and aware of each other's work for a long time. So this is really great to do this discussion with her. Um, so my book uh, is about the meanings created by the participation of female university students in radical protest in the 1960s in Japan. And I first came to this project because I was very surprised to hear that Japan had had a student movement um, and this was when I was rather young. I was in high school. I was an exchange student in Japan. And my host mother would kind of regale me with stories about uh, throwing rocks at police in the streets of Tokyo and things like that. And um, it just was such a an un, uh, uh, inexplicable 
history. And then when I tried to, uh, when, you know, next to compared to the Tokyo I saw uh, and was experiencing in the mid 1990s. And then um, when I tried to learn more about it, there really just wasn't much written in English. Little did I know I would go on and I would would write the book I wanted to read. Um, but then also when I started to study the student movement in Japan and why it gets left out of the narrative of post-war history in Japan, which is often narrated as very harmonious, um, right? And also this um, moment of contentious politics gets left out of the global 1960s, which is part of what Naoko is trying to work on too. When I started to look at this also, um, people told me, well, this was a, a men-only movement, a boys' movement. The, the women weren't really involved um, or they were only support, uh, things like that. And then when I actually um, began to, to research this, this really was not true at all. And um, the title of my study is Code Revolution because I wanted to emphasize that that this movement, this um, uh, imagined revolution or idealized revolution, uh, took place in a newly co-educational uh, context. Japan became completely co-educational. Uh, formerly, all-male universities opened up to women. Um, women got the vote with the post-war. Um, and actually, this created a very interesting dynamic uh, within the student movement. And I, I argue that the female university student in these contexts tested the radical politics of student activists at the same time as she was challenging general social and economic divisions that insisted on separate spheres for men and women. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's that's very cool. And I, I, like, I like how both of you are making some really... Um, you know, I think interesting uh, interventions in a, a to, you know in some topics that overlap uh, here, and I I I want to say, and I appreciate this idea that Chelsea put forth of the in, uh, sort of writing the book that you want wanted to read. Um, that's that's very cool. Yeah. So I wanted to talk about those uh, those interventions that both of you are making, and I'm going to go to to Naoko on this uh, first again. So you're you're trying to make some um, as you've already sort of hinted here right you're trying to make some critical corrections to um, our historiography in your case not just of the student movement but of the cold war um, so can you start off talking about that oh okay um the first thing is like um, like chelsea mentioned there weren't uh, when we started this project i mean like chelsea and i met like second year at the grad school right <laughs> and uh, when we started this project like you know uh, there weren't much scholarly books on the Japanese sixties. I think Oguma Eiji's book was well, like um, new at the time, and uh, uh, um, a lot of books has been written by former activists, like memoirs or like you know what they did in the past. But there weren't much scholarly books about Japanese sixties then, and I think that in a sense, like you know, there was really like beginning of the uh, scholarly. Uh, intervention in terms of uh, history of Japanese 60s. And then I, I started uh, writing um, the Cold War and uh, how, because like a student was always against the Cold War liberalism. And then like I, there were no one writing uh, to history of student movement uh, in connection to diplomatic history. So that's uh, one of the uh, intervention I made uh, for this project. And, uh, um, yeah, like, you know, uh, when you topic up, like, you know, history of Japanese, uh, the post-war U.S.-Japan relations, it's always about, like, you know, ideological affinities and alliance and uh, feel of these corporations. 
But, you know, if you really look into the history of post-war Japan, there are so many people against it. So I really wanted to uh, look at them as also within the political process of post-war in Japan. And uh, also, uh, when we when I started writing um, the Japanese, the history of Japanese 60s, uh, many of the books on the 60s were dominated by the uh, conventions, uh, which was established based on the 60s, the history of the 60s in the West. So, the, for example, a major books mostly started with like, you know, 1960s, like, you know, how this is like, you know, especially like, you know, uh, uh, like um, many people talk about like, you know, the 60s begin with uh, African-American students in Greensboro, North Carolina, North Carolina, starting like, you know, Sydney's. And these are like uh, the history of six. It was like a dominant narrative of the 1960s, uh, the history of 60s. But uh, when you look at the Japanese case, it really starts with 19, late 1940s. So I really made it, um, I wanted to break the uh, chronological barrier of the uh, history of 60s in, in, in that way. Yeah, so I like, I like this, um, you know, so you're sort of de-centering the, the Cold War, right, and, and trying to bring out the, uh, the multiple uh, vectors of force that are they're acting there, and that it's not just a sort of simple, you know, Americanization or U.S. versus Soviet, but also that you're you're intervening into the the timeline because the timeline in Japan, you know, as I think you show quite nicely, is significantly different. Um, and Chelsea, you're you're dealing with uh, I think you know, some of the same issues, but also you have this uh, what seemed to me a, 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 a sort of two sets of tensions, right? One that's historical and one that's historiographical. Um, can you tell us about that? Uh, yeah, and I think that that I'm was responding to some of the same issues that Naoko was responding to. Although I don't uh, actively use the Cold War as my my framework, it did baffle me once I started looking at uh, the Japanese 1960s and the student movement in particular. Um, why the Japanese uh, New Left and and the student movement um, doesn't make it into the global. Um, story because Japan was really on the front lines of the hot wars of the Cold War and because of its position, which I'm sure Naoko will go on, on go into more as well. But in terms of these two historical tensions, whereas Naoko is dealing with literal transnational uh, relations and how that influences uh, uh, a movement and how a movement influences transnational relationships, um, I see myself as positioning my history. Um, as a as a global uh, as a an intervention to global history or global 1960 his, 1960s history in a thematic way, so I link it to um, kind of global historical trends of of this moment, um, and these two uh, tensions, uh, as you you mention as as I write about. So the first was a is a tension that I found within this history itself. So the campus-based New Left in Japan, and I use the term campus-based New Left in Japan because I really focus on uh, the university student movement, although one could also um, uh, consider uh, young uh, workers um, as as part of the New Left as well, as Ando Takemasa has done. So 
I look at the campus-based New Left in Japan as a radical movement that in many ways prompted its participants to consider how their lived daily life intersected with larger political and economic structures, and thus it opened up spaces for consideration of the often invisible role of the female labor within modern capitalism, but dynamics within the movement also foreclosed such discussions. So because it was a co-ed revolution or a, a student movement that was based in uh, and education, educational institutions that were co-ed um, in uh, social expectations that were kind of newly co-ed, political expectations that were newly um, co-ed. I, I, and I use co-ed a little bit tongue in cheek. Um, but because of this, uh, there was actually uh, a lot more um, political uh, interactions on a daily life level um, between young men and young women. Um, and they were making many very radical critiques that were very similar to new left movements elsewhere. And yet at the same time, this radical critique didn't necessarily uh, touch um, some of the dynamics uh, within the movement, uh, particularly sort of hierarchical, um, uh, gendered uh, division of labor within the movement that I hope to talk about a bit later. So there is this this tension in this history. And what's so interesting to me is that basically anywhere there was a new left, anywhere there was a, a post-war student movement uh, that we can define as new left, which means it split off from the establishment left of, of communist parties um, and stepped away from kind of the, the Soviet line. Um, anywhere that there was this, this new left movement, um, subsequent to that, there was a women's libera liberation movement. There were several kinds of, of sort of, we could call separationist movements. We can think of the Black Power Movement in the United States alongside the women's liberation movement. Um, but there were women liberation movements uh, a, that grew out of new left movements in Mexico, in France, in uh, Japan as well. And that to me is kind of this global resonating uh thematically resonating um, uh, issue. So that's one historical tension. And that's about actually me looking at this and trying to understand what was happening at the time. However, the other tension is what we might call a historiographical tension, which is that the historiography, I'm a historian, I should be able to pronounce historiography. So historiography of the 1960s um, often replicates uh, this this uh, um, an idea that uh, the 1960s was um, mostly a, a movement, um, a masculinist movement. There was mostly a movement of young men. This is partly because the mass media at the time often really sought out uh, young men as leaders and representatives of movements um, in many places. Um, but often uh, within the historiography of the 1960s as well, the new left is memorialized as primarily male. And actually, I came to this realization reading about uh, how the new left was memorialized and written about in other places, uh, particularly Susanna Draper's work on, uh, on um, Mexico was very influential to me. 
Yeah, thank you. Uh, so I want to then, uh, now that we sort of set the scene here uh, and talked about some of these big picture questions, including some of the historiography um, and the interventions that you're trying to make, I, I want to jump into the chapters and try uh, as best as we can here to sort of interweave the two stories that you're telling, right? Um, because although, you know, uh, now, as you said, as you've said, you're doing uh, you know, Cold War uh, diplomatic perspective on uh, that includes, you know, history of the Japanese student movement in Chelsea, although your interest is uh, much more in the uh, gender dynamics of the campus, uh, the new left. Um, there are, and, and I guess this is obviously the reason why I've invited you both on today, but there, there's a lot of overlaps. Um, and so I want to try and bring those out as we move forward. And I think um, the first two chapters of Naoko's book provide a really good way uh, to get into that with a little bit of Cold War historical background. Uh, so I want to just, I want to start with those two chapters. And I have kind of one question and then a follow-up. Uh, so you quote a high-ranking member of the occupation uh, who was talking about the U.S. post-war vision of Japan and referred to it as, quote, a laboratory in which Western ideas institutions and methods were tested within the context of an Asian society. And so in that context, um, communism, you know, as it does you know, elsewhere, of course, but emerges as this existential threat. And the universities uh, emerge as one of the key battlegrounds for uh, what, you know, we've more recently referred to as hearts and minds. So how do the Japanese students um, react to this war of ideas that is already occurring uh, even under the occupation? And then my, my follow-up to this is, that you, because you follow up on it in your second chapter, um, you talk about uh, Walter Crosby at Eels, who's the higher education advisor to SCAP uh, up till, uh, from 1949 to 1951. Um, and you, you talk about this quote-unquote whirlwind that he stirred up in Japanese universities. Um, and I'd love if you could talk a little bit about that. It's very colorful and also uh, it was important in sort of shaping the student movement. Okay. Um, the first of like you know, uh, in the from the beginning of the occupation to around nineteen forty seven, uh, the U.S. promoted a more inclusive uh, democracy, like freeing communists from the prison, and uh, uh, you know, they're really uh, the democratic ideals that was enshrined, promoted uh, during the war and uh, immediate post war. But uh, from the late 1940s to early 1950s, the the Cold War became more prioritized, and the changing political atmosphere provided strong impetus for student activists to mobilize in defense of academic freedom. The uh, culture and the education section of GHQ started this war of ideas, and uh, to pull and this was really. Um, posing a serious threat to academic freedom for student activists in Japan. And in the summer of 1949, when the anti-communist crusade began extending its purge program uh, to universities, it triggered a large-scale student opposition on campus. And because for students, it reminded them of the red purge by the fascist government, like famous Takigawa case in which Kyoto University professor was purged during the wartime, during the war, uh, by the Ministry of Education, Hatoyama Ichiro. So this convinced them that uh, democratic education is in danger again. And Il's speech 
at uh, Niigata University became known as the EELS statement. And the so-called the um, EEL roundtable, which he engaged with other uh, faculty members at uh, um, Hokkaido University, they both resulted in uh, wasn't really successful, and rather uh, it highlighted the absurdity of America's anti-communism. And of course, EELS failed to convince students of the incompatible uh, incompatibility of communism with democracy. And uh, so, uh, but like, you know, student protests became really energized through this um, protest against yields. Uh, they call it a defense of a democratic education protest and campaign. And they became, in the middle of this uh, protest against yield, the student protesters became less hesitant to openly attack, openly attack American imperialism, which was uh, very dangerous things to do under the occupation because Japan at the time was still under the occupation. So um, this chapter shows how American concept of democracy was increasingly being negotiated with the Cold War, while the student upheld more inclusive democracy the U.S. had promoted uh, during the war and the early uh, occupation period. Yeah, thank you. Um, and I want I want to stay uh, with with Naoko here just for for a moment uh, because I want to uh, think about the uh, something that sort of relates to this. Um, so the student protests uh, in the mid nineteen fifties. Um, you sort of point to this uh, moment in the mid nineteen fifties as the next critical moment in the history of the student left. Um, and this is in your chapter three, talking about the protests against the Tachikawa Air Base uh, in, in the Tokyo area. Um, can you tell us how students were involved in the movement uh, against the expansion um, and how did that shape the student movement? Uh, in particular, the uh, sort of the, the uh, Zengakuren, which is this very important uh, organization uh, in the student movement. Um, yes, uh, Sunagawa protests played a crucial role in uniting the sprinter Zengakuren. Zengakuren was founded in 1948, but in early 50s, um, it became entangled with, uh, um, like, a communist party politics. And uh, so the Zengakuren wasn't really active at the time, but Sunagawa provided uh, Zengakuren with a clear organizational objective again. And it also, the engaging in Snagawa protests nurtured leftist students' imagination of international anti-imperial nationalist solidarity. Uh, the anti-base movement expressed nationalism in various ways, and some linked their, their uh, struggle against the U.S. military base with the Third World Liberation Movement. And... Um, through the Snagawa struggle, Zengakuren had not only recovered, but also grew more powerful and conf- confident. Um, it now perceived its role as a vanguard or mass proletariat quotation uh, movement. And the Snagawa struggle demonstrated the student left could mobilize and lead a mass opposition against the militarism in Japan. 
Yeah, so you also argue that um, for many of these activists, this was a, a formative experience. Uh, and I'm wondering whether uh, both you and Chelsea could talk a little bit about uh, that experience and about how uh, students came to see uh, their lives uh, and you know their everyday reality, including uh, protest, um, as part of these larger geopolitical concerns, right? Including uh, the sort of global uh, left versus I, I guess imperialism, you know, American imperialism in this case, or uh, thinking about the the uh, sort of struggles of the Cold War. Ah, uh, yes. The first, like I wrote, um, Snowdow struggle was a formative experience for student protesters. It's because, as far as I know, the Snowdow was the first major protest that gathered Zengakuren students across Japan. So. Until then, Zengakuren students were probably like leftist students as a whole was more locally uh, organized. But Snagawa struggle, uh, there were students uh, coming from Kyoto, Hokkaido, like Kyushu to Snagawa, which was uh, outside of uh, Tokyo. And uh, I think it was really first time the student saw themselves as being nationally organized. Mm. This this uh, overlapping between really global concerns and then also really local concerns, I also think is very characteristic of um, many of the student movement, um, uh, you know, uh, groups, and then also uh, many of their demands. And this, I think, also runs all the way through the end of the '60s and maybe even beyond the way that students would, uh, in the same document demand, uh, you know, an end to U.S. bases, um, a return of Okinawa uh, to Japan control, and then also, um, you know, more student uh, participation and decision-making processes at their local university. Um, And so it's quite interesting, this link between um, their their daily lives um, and what uh, they are doing and the institutions that they are in, and then also these larger geopolitical concerns, I think is a, is a thread we really um, can see quite well. And I think that also shapes some of the more um, what you might call personal as political uh, ideas that arise in the late 1960s. Um, and I think that uh, Sunagawa, this, what Nalgo is describing where the student left which at this moment, at least if we're talking about university students, is a rather small group of elite uh, young people that they are declaring themselves as the vanguard of the proletariat. Um, uh, That also is a really interesting, but also problematic framing, I think, of their own actions. And I think something else that's very interesting is the way that the student movement is constantly negotiating between is Japan a uh, does Japan's conflict with the United States does that is that similar to a third world national liberation struggle or uh, is the bigger problem Japan's uh, imperialist past uh, and then once we get to the the mid 1960s when Japan is signing treaties with um, South Korea. Uh, that that are have kind of neo-colonial um, uh, echoes. Uh, 
and are with, you know, very, very much not democratic uh, regimes in the region. There, there is a big uproar about Japan's neo-colonial policies as well. So this tension is Japan east or west? Is Japan um, part of the, the, the? I don't know. Definitely not part of the third world. But is Japan part of um, the world that is oppressed by U.S. militarism, or is Japan? Uh, part of the Cold War order that is uh, forging neo-colonial relationships, and what is the role of um, young people who are actually not proletariat but are, are more intellectual workers and eventually more of a managerial class? How can they see themselves as a vanguard of a of a revolution? Um, these are all very interesting negotiations that Naoko is pointing out, and that you you can see develop. Um, and remain uh, in the in the student movement throughout the 1960s. Yeah, um, and I want to. Uh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Uh, can I add one thing? Um, Please. The, the Chelsea said, like you know, it's really interesting. Like you know, that's a really uh, important point that, like, you know, how they could view themselves as a vanguard of the popular movement. And one thing I could say is that, like you know, in 1950s, they were still they were the generation pristine generation. Their parents were like in you know, war generations, so they saw themselves as a new democratic generation. They were like really, you know, pristine. Like you know, they were not tainted by fascism. So that was one of the reason the many students elite uh, describe themselves as like you know, I'm gonna lead this popular movement because you know they see themselves as a generation that deserves that. Yeah, thank you. That's a really interesting point. I think this this generational question that comes up in thinking about uh, post-war Japan is, is one that interests me personally. Um, I think we'll probably circle back around to some of uh, the issues that you both bring up about Sanagawa, uh, maybe after we talk about uh, the, uh, the so-called Ampo protests of 1960, because um, there's some some gender issues, you know, and some, some tensions uh, related to gender that are very much uh, central to Chelsea's work and interests that I also want to uh, give her, uh, Chelsea you a chance to, to talk about. Um, but can we move on to, to Ampo and we can sort of come back to that because I think it maybe makes more sense in that framework. Um, so let's talk about Ampo. Uh, and this is the US-Japan Security Treaty, uh, which is abbreviated Ampo. Uh, and the protests against its renewal in 1960 are probably, you know, the, the sort of most famous protests in uh, post-war Japan. They're famous for inaugurating really a, a decade of high-profile protest. Um, and you both show that this is intersecting with and overlapping with uh, the global 60s uh, and the Cold War and a lot of uh, the, the sort of issues of the times in important ways. Uh, so despite uh, public support for the protests, and despite the fact that they were the largest protests uh, at certainly at the time in Japanese history, you know, eventually this uh, the left you know, as a whole fails to stop uh, the revision of the treaty. Um, so it, it's this kind of you know it's this pivotal moment, right? Uh, that a lot of people have talked about and written about. Um, but can you tell us uh, first? I'd like to start with uh, with Naoko. I mean, can you tell us what the effects of this struggle were uh, on the student movement um, and also on the U.S. Right? Because I think you know that's the perspective that you're bringing to this is is that duality. Uh, okay. Uh, the first, well, um, yes, uh, the Ampo for for Ampo uh, student. Uh, the 
I think the uh, AMPO really intensified the uh, factional rivalries unleashed by the disintegration of Ubuntu faction that led the AMPO 1960s. And, uh, but also, I think Dengakuren ended up with having a mixed feeling. Like, you know, the one feeling is that, like, you know, this is, this is how much they can achieve. So, you know, they re- gained uh, confidence, but at the time, they couldn't stop uh, Ampo from, you know, uh, being revised. So there was like sort of like mixed feeling resulted among the student rivals and also intensified uh, factional rivalries. And for the United States, it shocked Americans. It became sort of like wake up call because it's really embarrassing. Like, you know, the Japanese, you know, America wanted Japan to be a showcase of American democracy and the capitalism. And then now, like, you know, Japanese people, like, you know, sort of like, in their view, uh, being like, you know, anti-American. So it was really, like, embarrassing and also uh, became a wake-up call for U.S. policymakers at the time. Yeah, and Chelsea, can you can you jump in here? I want to, um, you know, one of the things that you uh, get into in your research is uh, the memory and commemoration of Ampo, the way that it's sort of become this uh, touchstone moment in Japanese history. Uh, in particular, you know, you're writing about uh, Kamba Michiko, uh, a female student who dies as part of the protest. Um, and so if you could sort of weave that in here, um, you know, who was she and how did her death affect the student movement? Um, and also, how is that remembered now? Mm-hmm. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory. Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Yeah, so, um, I mean, we're all Japan specialists, or, I mean, Naoko, sorry, I don't know if, <laughs> if you want yeah. to call yourself a Japan specialist. <laughs> just just very quickly. Come to the dark side, yeah. <laughs> very quickly, just to say, Ampo, um, uh, for those who maybe might be interested in this, but we've, we're already diving into the, the details. Um, I think that, that Nick Kapoor's book about Ampo gives a really good um, sense of the events uh, that occurred that now we kind of lump together and call Ampo. Um, and, uh, and there are kind of, uh, there are many different kinds of um, groups that came together against the revisions and the renewal of the U.S.-Japan Security Treaty, which is called AMPO. But, you know, it's often remembered as uh, commemorated today as a really, um, as as the high moment of civic activism in Japan, which is so interesting because it was ultimately a failure. I mean, people came out to the streets, um, but they were not able to stop the renewal of the U.S.-Japan Security Treaty, um, one could argue, and Kapoor does argue that, I mean, Kishi Nobusuke, the prime minister, steps down. So that is a success. Um, but then again, it really sets up Kishi's party, the Liberal Democratic Party, for uh, it's a consolidation of of power as well. So, um, so Ampo. So Ampo is commemorated as this really high point 
of protest in Japan, which I, I think is so interesting. And when um, I suppose it was 2015 when uh, seals and there were there were many protests again around the, the national diet in Japan um, I, against various um, policies by the by uh, the Abe administration. And uh, when I was watching the news at the time, people were, um, you know, posting photographs of of the masses that had had collected around the National Diet Building in 1960 um, for Ampo, and people were drawing these links between Ampo and the voice of the people in the streets, and and taking um, people in power uh, to task or whatever. Um, that was very nostalgic, and I thought that was so interesting because um, because of the way that the late 1960s protest. Um, is seen as as kind of the bad version of protest, like what happens when protest gets too extreme. Um, uh, and in, in many senses, I mean, it, you know, the late 60s was incredibly violent, was a moment of incredible violence in terms of protest. But so were the, the late 1950s and early 60s. Um, so police in Japan, as far as I understand it, stopped using guns as crowd control when when protesters were killed in 1952 at a May Day uh, protest. Um, but uh, but there was a one death um, that uh, came out of the 1960 Ampo protest. And I do write that death at, about that death at length. And this is the death of, of Kamba Michiko, as you mentioned. And so Kamba Michiko was an undergraduate at the prestigious University of Tokyo. Um, she was a, a middle class a uh, young woman. She was 22 at her death, and she uh, was the daughter of a, of a professor. Um, she actually grew up in a Christian household. Actually, in my research, I don't talk about this too much in depth, but there are quite a few uh, young women from Christian households who were student movement leaders in the 1960s, and I think that has to do with the fact that Christianity, you know, uh, is also... Um, uh, uh, very closely linked with kind of in intellectual sort of households um, in Japan. Uh, but this is a bit of a, an aside. So Kamba Michiko was uh, involved in the Bunto. Uh, Naoko mentioned the Bunto, and she was involved in the Zengakuren. And uh, she was uh, at, at the front of a protest and a group of protesters who broke into uh, the compound, the National Diet compound, faced off against the police, and uh, she was killed. And there is still debate. Uh, there are two conflicting autopsies about the cause of death. There's debate about if she were trampled by the crowd, in which case that would be kind of a blame the protester scenario, or if she were strangled, if she was strangled by the police. And and there is testimony from other protesters that the police were were were. Um, going for people's necks uh, to hold people back. Um, and so, so she may have been strangled uh, uh, that way. So, um, but what is interesting about the death of, of Kamba from my research is, so I'm very interested in the way that um, female students uh, are, are very much um, constrained. Uh, female student activists are very constrained um, by their, their gender, um, although post-war laws have have allowed them into political spaces and educational spaces, um, they're still very much constrained 
um, by ideas about uh, how women should be. And this can play out in a variety of ways. And although Kamba did not die, probably did not die because she was uh, a woman, because she was female, um, she did step into this already existing post-war narrative of what I call naive politics. And I think this actually fits quite nicely with what Naoko just said about post-war young people um, thinking of themselves as the pristine, not tainted by uh, wartime guilt or war guilt or something like that. Um, but what I define as naive politics is that in the post-war period in Japan, there was um, this sense that it, it was uh, expertise and elites who had betrayed the people um, and that women in particular were going to be the ones who, because they were precisely because they were not experts in politics and precisely because they were outsiders and they were politically naive and therefore perhaps more authentic, um, that women were going to be uh, the ones that really made Japan a, a pacifist uh, nation. And, and women's suffrage was kind of um, uh, was ushered in um, because of these ideas of women and how they fit into naive politics. Um, and I, you know, I think that this is also based on a, a sort of historical amnesia, this idea that women were victims of the war, Japanese women were victims of the war. Um, you know, women were very much involved actually in the mobilization uh, effort. Um, and it's also a, a very essentializing idea of womanhood, but it, it also was a very powerful strategy for women to, to be able to um, make space for themselves in the public sphere. Um, and I think you can still see this a lot today in Japanese social movements. Um, women often speak as mothers, as household managers, you know, in this kind of way of like, well, we're not experts, but we know we know daily life, we know the actual conditions, and that's how women can create space for themselves in public. I think this can also be um, quite uh, uh, a very fraught strategy, which I will, um, which I think we see uh, in the late 1960s, but I'll, I'll get to that when I get to that. So Kamba stepped into this, this narrative. Um, she was very much, uh, very quickly became the symbol of the fragility and vulnerability of post-war democracy, as if as if, uh, you know, post-war democracy were also uh, gendered feminine, were also, uh, was also young uh, and vulnerable, um, which I found so fascinating because when I started to read Kamba's actual writing, I mean, she was quite young when she died. So um, perhaps she would have, have changed her position. I don't know. But she wrote in a very radical way. I mean, she was, she had a Marxist analysis of history, Um and I uh, and so I was really fascinated by the way that she was transformed into this symbol. I mean, she was also, you know, a young woman, but she was also often described as a shoujo or a girl. Um, and there's this kind of fetishization of the of the uh, young woman as a symbol of Japan's post-war uh, democracy. And I think that because Kamba fit that narrative so well, and because Kamba was the victim. Um, uh, that came out of uh, the violence of 1960, Ampo, um, there's a lot of nostalgia and a lot of um, very uh, sentimental feelings still about 1960, Ampo. 
Yeah, can can we um, stick with uh, with you, Chelsea? Because you you've just talked, to, uh, you know, uh, given us some details about Kamba, and one of the things that you do in your book then is contrast her radicalism, uh, despite the sort of commemoration of her as this, you know, virginal, pure figure, um, you know, and innocent and so on and so forth. But you contrast that with the writings uh, of Tokoro Mitsuko. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, so can you tell us about uh, Tokoro um, and about her vision for uh, the new left um, and why that's important? Yeah, so I think I think uh, one of the standard narratives is that you know 1960 Ampo happened, and then uh, and then there was no activism until the like late 60s again. And I found Tokoro Mitsuko to be a very interesting figure because she she bridges these two generations and these two moments. Um, Tokoro Mitsuko was a an undergraduate at the same time as Kamba. Uh, she was also a student uh, uh, activist in the New Left, and she was also at um, the Ampo protests. Um, but she, uh, she also, uh, wrote extensively even after her undergraduate period. And as a graduate student, um, she was in the sciences, but she was really, um, uh, very against what she saw as the rationalism, this kind of rational, uh, ideology of, um, uh, capitalism, uh, but also, of the old left. And so uh, she wrote a lot about what what a kind of um, more uh, caring uh, sort of organization, what would be the ideal form for activism? Because she was often, um, maybe we could call this uh, kind of an interest in prefigurative politics. She was really interested in, um, you can't just say, when the revolution happens, then we will implement all of these um, shifts to make make uh, you know people more equal or anything like that. It, the organization itself has to reflect the values you want to see at the end of the revolution. And what was interesting to me about Tokoro is that um, her ideas about forming a non-hierarchical or a horizontal um, kind of structure for a, a movement. Um, was very influential to the late 1960s Zeng Kyoto movement, um, which were campus-based groups that were much more loosely organized than what we might call the factional or sectarian new left groups, which still remained very hierarchical, um, which required a great deal of commitment. You couldn't just not show up if you didn't feel comfortable or something like that. So um, Tokoro wrote a lot about kind of a more horizontal uh, movement. And those ideas were picked up. She she was close with um, people who became leaders who were graduate students in the late 1960s and were friendly with her and who became leaders in the late 1960s campus-based New Left. Um, but what was interesting me, to me was the way that her ideas about a more nurturing movement actually got dropped out. And um, now Tokoro builds her ideas about a more nurturing movement um, uh, you know, on essentialist ideas about what she calls women's logic. She does say that that it's not only women who can have women's logic, but I do see a similar essentializing idea about, you know, women and naive politics um, in Tokoro. And I don't think her sense of the history of the wartime is exactly right. She's, she's writing of her time in that sense. Um, but what I did think was interesting is that she, she talks about the importance of nurturing and she talks about the importance of what we might call care work. 
And she talks about how that can really uh, test um, if we're, uh, you know, she was a scientist. So she was she was very disturbed by the way that science was used by um, those in power and uh, university research and university um, science research was used to create uh, killing, um, you know, chemicals or machines in the name of, of, you know, there were all kinds of rationalizations for this. And she said, well, let's return to thinking about um, just caring for lives and not thinking about, uh, you know, uh, if we mow down this uh, village in Vietnam, we can achieve, you know, this military aim or something like that. Now, Tokoro died, also died. Um, uh, and, you know, there's a there's a kind of sentimental spot, I suppose, also for dead women who can no longer um, speak for themselves. Right. But Tokoro died actually at the beginning of what we might call the 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 Zen Kyoto movement um, of a of a a disease. So it wasn't a, a death that was because of her activism. Um, but it's so it's also hard to say how she would have reacted to um, the Zen Kyoto moment. Um, but again, kind of similar to Kamba, you know, aspects of what she wrote and what she stood for were picked up on and other aspects that she wrote about quite passionately just were ignored in the course of the moment and I, in the movement. And I think that that reflects um, some of the uh, other gendered oversights or um, biases within the movement as well. Yeah, so I want to um, I want to take a, a moment here to zoom back out uh, from talking about these you know individuals. Uh, we've talked about Kamba, we've talked about Tohoro, uh, and think and you know, sort of move us back to the larger um, Cold War perspective for a second. Um, and, you know, once again, sort of situating the new left, the campus-based new left in particular within that. But, um, you know, as, as Naoko, as you explore in the latter half of your book, um, after the Ampo protests, uh, and, you know, ultimately that happens in 1960 and then again in 1970, um, the U.S. attempts to divide the new left uh, to excise the Marxist and communist influence within this. And this is, I think, you know, uh, as, as you point out is sort of a reaction to the uh, the great shock that you just mentioned, right? And uh, you, you talk about the uh, the Kennedy-Reichauer offensive uh, in Japan, and it's called that because of uh, the key role played by uh, Kennedy's ambassador, Edwin Reichauer. Um, so Reichauer promoted this idea of modernization theory um, and also the idea of a U.S.-Japan partnership. Um, so I guess briefly we should talk a little bit about what modernization theory is, and then um, and then also why is this rhetoric of partnership important? Um, what is it meant to do? What's its sort of function that that uh, in that sense? Um, and what effect did it actually have? Right? What is what does this offensive actually accomplish? Uh, okay, so um, after Ampo, Ampo became really like uh, picked up on like. You know, pick up by um, democratic uh, democratic leaders like uh, uh, most famously like John F. Kennedy. Like you know, they criticized the old style of Republican leadership, of, like you know, for having failed to block the spread of communist influence in the world. And uh, you know, the Kennedy said um, before like he was elected as a president. Like, you know, friends have slipped into neutrality and the neutrals, to, neutrals into hostility. So he, he really, like, you know, uh, 
criticize the Republicans for like, you know, the president who began his career by going to Korea, which is, uh, you know, Korean War, and by staying away from Japan. So he's really like, you know, the Demo- uh, Democrats used Ampo as like, you know, weakness of Republican leadership. And uh, Kennedy became president and what happened was like, you know, he really uh, take up on this modernization theories, which was very popular among the scholars, uh, including uh, Japan specialist uh, Reicher. Uh, he was very famous modernization theorist. And uh, modernization theory assumed the linear progress of a capitalist society. So it was really like aimed to challenge what they understood as a Marxist evolutionism. And uh, Reicher becoming the uh, ambassador in Japan uh, made a conscious effort to foster mutual dialogue with the Japanese intellectuals. But that really meant demarkisize, like, you know, the, like try to liberate uh, the Japanese from all the shackles of Marxist beliefs. Because Reicher believed that... Um, once they came to embrace rationality, not the Marxism, they would understand the real benefits of American liberalism. So he tried to diminish the prominence of Marxism in the intellectual quarter of Japan by articulating this capitalist alternative theory, which called modernization theory, um, in Japan. And uh, that... Um, and also, Reicher believed that occupation mentality of the U.S. embassy was a problem because, uh, you know, uh, before Reicher, there was a nephew of MacArthur and the general MacArthur. So it was really um, like occupation mentality exists, uh, still existed in U.S. embassy. And the, what Reicher did was he opened the doors to ordinary Japanese people Um and he, you know, he will join like citizens meetings or like, you know, festivals. And he really tried to um, uh, be closer to ordinary Japanese people. And, and he really emphasized during his term in Tokyo, uh, partnership with Japan. It was really to ameliorate the Japanese feeling of being subordinate to U.S. interest. Because I both left and right was really like, you know, Angizios about like in Japan being like, you know, um, sort of like, you know, U.S. Uh, subordinate. So he was trying to ameliorate the feeling. Of course, the United States never meant to actually elevate Japan's status to equal partner, but still, I mean, the U.S. was superpower and Japan was like its ally. Uh, ally. So, but like, you know, try to ameliorate the Japanese feeling. So, he used the term partnership instead of alliance, which really connotated the militaristic uh, aspect of relations. But student radicals and the student activists and also like leftist intellectuals criticized the modernization theory for trivializing the history of Japanese fascism and colonial aggression. Uh, modernization theories posited that Japan had taken off in Meiji and ultimately becoming like Western democracies. So modernization theorists, for the modernization theorists, the fascist period was a brief period of deviation in the overall successful modernization progress that Japan had made. 
but the student left challenged the modernization theory, but wasn't really successful because a lot of Japanese people liked it. Uh, it for one reason, the modernization theorist's interpretation of Japanese modern history made uh, many ordinary Japanese people, for the first time since the war, feel good about themselves and their national history. Yeah, and I think it's for this reason that you argue um, that in in the wake of this uh, talk of partnership and this you know idea of uh, modernization theory, which puts Japan uh, you know back on sort of good footing historically or historiographically, um, that this is one of the reasons for the uh, inability of this very important uh, central student organizations and Gakuren to launch an effective sort of counterattack to uh, the Kennedy Reichauer offensive. Am I reading that correctly? Uh, yes, because uh, because in 1960 Japan this time is very different from 1950s or earlier decades because uh, there was a high economic growth going on and uh, the you know the kind of material richness was different from the previous generation. So even like Zenga Christian, because they were like, you know, their Marxist Leninist critique of American imperialism remained powerful. But also, like, you know, the Zenga Christian students in the 1960s, in the middle 1960s, there was a more ambivalence toward American democracy. And uh, they're resistant to so called like American bourgeois democracy, seems to be weaker in the early 1960s compared to a previous decade, like in 1950s. And also what made Kennedy successful in Japan was arguably not his challenge to Marxism, like Eels did, like Eels in 1950s attacked directly against the communism, like communism is bad. But Kennedy never really attacked communism uh, like they, uh, they, they're like uh, his predecessors. Uh, rather, he was like, you know, trying to demonstrate America's commitment to democracy. And one of the things he said, like, you know, that in democracy, you can express any ideas and opinions. And, uh, you know, we have to exchange ideas and opinions. Um, and also his emphasis on personal freedom of thought and speech, it really made... Uh, American democracy is like uh, look good, <laughs> and then uh, Zengakren was like you know they tried to come up with like, some ideas against uh, this uh, liberal offensive, but they weren't really successful. And actually, it's funny because at the Waseda University, the student protested against like you know not protest but like you know kind of like challenge the Kennedy, but after that they felt so bad like you know what happened to like what. They did, and so some of them gathered and wrote a letter to U.S. Embassy. And I'm sorry, Kennedy, we did something bad. <laughs> like, so it was really um, key moment in a sense that how Zengakuren seemed unable to launch any effective con- like sort of counterattack in the in the face of like you know Russia and Kennedy's liberal approach. Yeah, and, and so this was actually something um, you mentioned in a note as we were sort of preparing for the podcast that uh, it wasn't just President Kennedy, uh, but Bobby oh, Kennedy. Yes, this, yeah. yeah, Robert Kennedy, his brother, uh, he came to Japan. Yeah, can you tell us a little bit about that? I thought this was a very interesting uh, little episode that you had. And then maybe, Chelsea, if you want to jump in um, to respond. Sure. So the Kennedy, Robert Kennedy 
came to visit Tokyo and Osaka in February 1962 because what happened with Ampo and like, you know, he thought like, you know, really like, you know, they had to make a conscious effort to improve the image of the United States in, in Japanese society. And like like last year, Kennedy tried to meet ordinary Japanese people. And it's funny because um, the, the government, Japanese government, made up this uh, welcoming Robert Kennedy committee and they tried to set up the tea ceremony with emperor and empress. And, but like Kennedy said, like, you know, I want to cancel the tea ceremony with emperor. Instead, I want to meet Zengakuren. And uh, I agree. He was, I think that's really tells the story because the United States weren't concerned about good allies in Japan. He was like, they were more in, interested in non-communist neutrals. And of course, young people, were the future of Japan. So, and while well, his advisor was uh, Schlesinger, and the Schlesinger was, uh, he, he wrote the uh, Vital Center, like famous book called like, Vital Center, The Politics of Freedom in 1949. And uh, the Schlesinger advised Robert Kennedy that like, you know, don't criticize, like, or don't attack Marx or like Marxism or like don't say communism is bad. Just try to be like you know how America is like like you know how American democracy is more like open to discussion and uh, uh, also like try to show like you know young people in United States like you know it's like you <laughs> so you're like you know try to like the, the communists. Like instead of like saying communism is bad, like they were trying to re- like you know say like you know, American liberalism is not what you think. So, and like uh, I think the Kennedy was very successful. Well, one thing like everyone liked the Kennedy, like you know the 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 way they dress, like the the way he represented, like young and like you know uh, like smart and like also he bought, uh his wife who also came to Japan with him was like you know celebrated as a like sort of like model of modern women and and it's funny because uh i also a funny episode is that the kennedy went to osaka factory and he he said he sat at the lunch counter with workers and he said like you know i want a worker's meal so he ate whale meat because at the time mm-hmm. whale meat was like sort of proletarian meat <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's interesting. And the um, what you said about uh, Bobby Kennedy's wife, you know, being sort of revered as the the model of the modern woman, I guess, um, in some interesting ways, connects us back to uh, some of the conflicts about uh, gender roles and, and sort of gender more generally uh, that are really at the center of Chelsea's work. And so, I wanted to uh, transfer us, you know, sort of transition back to that uh, and think a little bit about. Um, you know what the what the sort of gender dynamics are um, for the. Well, can I transition? Can labs? I transition actually um, from from what Nalco like to... just said about liberalism? Because I think it's quite interesting. Okay, yeah. So, um, yeah, so I think absolutely. this is so yes. interesting what Nalco has said about how the United States launched basically a, a public relations campaign. This is kind of soft power, um, and I'm curious. Uh, you know, I don't really know about the development of soft power, or the history of of this kind of um, sort of media politics on on a global uh, scale or anything like that. But very interestingly, I do think that that the police in the late 1960s in Japan as well. So 
Um, I will talk more about the internal uh, dynamics that that undermined uh, the new left in Japan, um, which are very gendered, which I see as very gendered. But but one of the external factors in the decline also of the new left in Japan um, is that the the police really started waging a, a charm offensive, basically. Um, as long as the police had, um, as long as there were a lot of media photos of um, the police uh, physically confronting and assaulting uh, young people, um, particularly young women, um, <clears throat> public opinion, public, uh, there was a lot of public outrage about that. And this is partly what these this uh, strategy that was quite common in the 1960s as well, right? You provoke uh, the state authority and you provoke these ostensibly peaceful uh, states to to show the actual violence. Um, but uh, in the the gosh, I believe it's the it's the late 1960s, early 1970s, um, the police in Japan also hire a public relations uh, company. Uh, and they they really start to reach out to the community, um, reach out to these, yeah, this, this so-called ordinary Japanese people in a way that the student movement by the late 1960s was not doing. Um, and I think that it's it's also uh, quite interesting, this, this um, sort of history of the term liberalism or the way that the United States was selling this term liberalism as about individual freedom and as about maybe this uh, freer consumer lifestyle. Because I think that uh, in Japan today as well, to this day, uh, you really don't call yourself, or I should say, people whose politics um, I I would see and call leftist um, really would not call themselves sayoku, right? Or, or leftist, left wing. Um, sayoku or leftist in Japan has become a very hard very extreme term. And I just read such an interesting piece by Vivian Shaw about how um, uh, many young people whose politics are, are, you know, to my eyes and to my analysis are quite radical, um, actually embrace this term liberal, right? And that's in part to distance themselves from the new left. And I'm sure that's also part of the legacy of this uh, Kennedy charm offensive. Um, so that's really interesting to think about. Um, but if I were to to talk then about the internal tensions and dynamics I see, um, yeah, I think that in the new left, in the late 1960s, there's this cultural shift towards an emphasis on on freedom and liberation. And, um, and in some senses, that language, I think, might influence the subsequent women's liberation movement, which um, if you want a book about that, in Japan, Setsu Shigematsu's book *Scream from the Shadows* is the book to get the real, the the uh, a really good analysis of the women's liberation movement. But at least within the New Left, um, uh, over the 1960s, um, while there is uh, a very interesting attention to the links between kind of daily life and the way that um, you know one student activist put it, the kind of my home boom or the the home ownership boom in Japan and this newly affluent lifestyle was built upon the bodies of dead Vietnamese people. They were, again, making these links between um, uh, their individual lives and this new affluence of Japan, but then also uh, Japan's uh, relationship 
to to uh, to active wars, the hot wars of the Cold War. Um, I, but I, another another dynamic is this um, kind of uh, rise of an emphasis on on personal freedom or personal liberation. Um, which which is also really defines the subject of the revolution as male and as masculine. And this is maybe not necessarily new, um, but I think that it was uh, uh, kind of increasingly um, annoying, infuriating uh, to young women who um, I, I in the re- in the sources I see young women consciousness about women's issues is a funny thing because. At every moment when I look at these sources written by um, young university women from the 1950s through the 1970s, it's not like women, young women or older women, were not aware of what we might call, quote unquote, women's issues or what we call now gender issues. But at the time, uh, gender would be an anachronism. I mean, they didn't use the term gender. So um, they weren't unaware of gender issues, of women's issues, I should say. Um, but uh, so it's not like suddenly in 1970, something snapped and women were like, oh, we we have women's issues that aren't being addressed. Like women were constantly aware of this. But I think that they were um, willing to put that aside because the, the re- you know, the revolution would come first, whatever that might mean. And for some of the the really hard Marxist Leninist students, that meant, you know, Marxist Leninist revolution for some others. Maybe that would have a different sort of um Shape so the revolution would happen, and then, you know, and then they could shake out this gender equality thing. But then um, they found themselves uh, doing all of these support jobs. And again, what's interesting is that these code, you know, these support jobs like mimeographing flyers, right? So like, uh, um, mimeographing is kind of like um, uh, when you when you write um, like a form and it and it copies many forms for you. So these flyers had to be mimeographed. Um, uh, jail support, um, making food, cleaning. Because at this point, students were barricading buildings, right? So they had to have they had domestic work as well. Um, these these are actually critical tasks for any movement, right? The actual organizing um, uh, and the, the the care work of a movement is actually critical. For a movement to go beyond one uh, one demonstration or something like that, um, but not only were women doing this important work, but this work was not seen as important precisely because it was seen as feminine work, as women's work, right? So there was a gendered hierarchy of labor, and then uh, what was seen as more authentic activism was, uh, you know, attacking, uh, you know, confronting the police, the riot police, or you know, beating up members of rival sects with uh, sticks and then steel bars. And these these conflicts, these intersectarian rivalries became deadly in the late 1960s, which didn't do anything for public, you know, popular support for the movement. Um, and uh, just in a lot of these narratives I read, women were kind of making lots and lots of rice balls. Many women record, record like kind of making lots and lots of rice balls for meetings and just being like, wait a second. Why, why am I the one doing this, you know, and when this is not considered like real activism um, and that really became the kikake, the, the impetus for a uh, women's liberation movement um, that, that separated and, and prioritized women's issues um, over the revolution. 
Yeah, and, and it's it this this is uh, I think a sort of key point that I wanted to make sure we touched on, right? Which is that um, you know as as you point out, Chelsea, uh, at the same time that the police are uh, and and as Nalco points out, also the U.S. Um, so these you know big state actors are turning to you know a charm offensive to this more sort of uh, you know liberal uh, persuasive posture. Uh, the campus-based New Left in particular, and I think the New Left somewhat more generally, if I'm reading this correctly, um, is actually taking this very sort of hardline, uh, masculinist, aggressive, often violent pose uh, in its sort of uh, uh, public-facing aspects. And at the same time, what that means is that all the uh, all the care work, all the support work, is being shunted off to the women who were involved. And, and I guess what what you know, in addition to all these ironies, one of the sort of things that really struck me here was that you know, in in your uh, in in one of your later chapters in your book, um, you actually point out, Chelsea, that it it's at this same time that the mass media becomes fixated on the gewalt girls, the violence girls of the new left, right? And so like, even as it's the it's primarily the men out there doing the violence, the media mm-hmm. becomes fixated on the violence of women. And I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about that. About Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a great story. Culture. It's a very, I call it the titillating and terrifying figure of the, the gewalt rosas. They were called gewalto rosa, gewalt being the German word for uh, violence or force, and uh, it was used by the student movement to actually indicate their counter violence. Um, German uh, has a has a, a history as as being a kind of um, a language of many slang terms, and uh, among students in Japan from the pre-war period, actually too. So they, so they loved this term Gewalt or Gebaruto. Um and then Rosa comes from uh, Rosa Luxemburg. Um, and uh, that was um, first attributed to a young woman named Kashiwaki uh, Chieko, Kashiwazaki, excuse me, Kashiwazaki Chieko, um, who was a graduate student at Tokyo University, uh, inspired by national liberation struggles around the world in the 1960s. She decided to study Polish history. And so um, since Rosa Luxemburg uh, was uh, you know, very active in the the German um, uh, socialist movement, but was um, was originally from Poland um, or was Polish. Uh, uh, I'm she very much embraced this term, the Gewalt Rosa, but it quickly became a term used for any young woman involved in the student movement. And I, so I, as an undergraduate, I studied with Miriam Silverberg. And when I came to this term, Gebarto Rosa, and the way it was used in popular media, in the mass media, it reminded me a lot of Moga, the modern girl, where it, it seemed to reflect anxieties within the society that went far beyond wh- whoever these people actually were and whatever they were actually doing, because it was um, there were just contradictory things like that they were that they were funny or silly or, um, uh, you know, and shouldn't be taken seriously or that they were incredibly dangerous and, you know, femme fatales luring uh, young men to their to their deaths, uh, you know, and, and like 
pushing, goading them on to ever deeper violence. And I also thought it was very interesting to consider when I started to think about naive politics and the way that Kambamichiko became a symbol of of post-war democracy's fragility in a very feminized way. Um, naive politics is is based on an idea that women uh, have a more authentic connection to everyday life, and therefore their influence and their interventions into politics are to counter whatever expert, whatever you know, the, the male experts are are doing, right? But but naivety, naivete in uh, politics can also uh, really mean or being more authentically, you know, connected more to an emotional politics can very easily be flipped into, um, you know, too emotional, completely irrational, too extreme. And as the student movement itself uh, came to seem more and more extreme, and as it lost uh, connections with um, uh, many uh, grassroots uh, connections, uh, as it lost, um, you know, the, the public relations battle for the, the ordinary citizen against the police, as it lost uh, the sympathy of the mass media, um, what, what, was fascinated to, what was fascinating to me is that it was really the young women in the movement and then the imagined figure of the, the Gewalt girl, um, the Gewalt Rosa, who became uh, this media uh, symbol of the um, silliness or the excesses or the danger of the new left. And if we want to take two very specific actual living, breathing human examples of this, I would say it's uh, it would be Nagata Hiroko, who is probably the most infamous uh, student activist in Japan. Uh, she, of course, was co-leaders of the United Red Army with a with a male leader, um, but uh, he was not dragged through the mud quite the same way that she was. Um, uh, and she was accused. I mean, her politics were completely obscured by discussions about her feminine jealousy and that she was ugly and maybe she was infertile and um, and all of these things. Um, uh, after, you know, in the, the subsequent kind of, um, media circus, uh, that emerged, that exploded when it was discovered the United Red Army had killed, um, several of their own members, uh, in a kind of internal purge, a very gory story, but then arguably the most infamous, but then also most glamorous, uh, uh, new left activist, from Japan in in the global arena would be Shigenobu Sako, who um, was was discussed as um, you know very feminine, very beautiful, but then also discussed as uh, someone who lured young men to their deaths. Um, and uh, and then there are also you know this also links in with these global trends as well, where in the early nineteen seventies you're seeing. Um, uh, conservative forces uh, around the world um, kind of uh, reassert themselves and you're seeing a, a waning support for what's being seen as an increasingly out of control um, new left movement uh, that is increasingly uh, fragmented um, and with extreme groups um, uh, going underground, but then also uh, staging, you know, 
uh, spectacular acts of terrorism. Um, in this moment, you're also seeing a lot of the women involved in, in these extremist uh, groups being um, being uh, seen or, or explained as um, evidence that also feminism is too extreme, right? Uh, and so uh, I think that's also like the very difficult um, ground that 1970s women's liberation activists, 1970s feminists were also operating around in Japan and other places. I'm going to take us uh, here back to uh, the the sort of Cold War perspective. And it's something that, that uh, uh, sort of struck me is that the in some ways, the kind of uh, last major turning point uh, that that comes up, I guess, uh, for Naoko, this is the final chapter of your book, uh, is the Vietnam War, uh, and I'm curious. Uh, you know, the the in we've had you know this sort of alphabet soup of you know, as as you always do whenever you talk about Japanese student movements, and I think you know. Uh, uh, leftist movements more generally, you know, we've had our Zenkyoto and Zengakuren and Bunto and all these things. But um, you know, the, our, our last uh, addition contribution to this is Beheiren, uh, the anti-Vietnam War activist movement. Um, and you write that Beheiren uh, emerges uh, at the forefront of trans-Pacific uh, anti-war activism uh, because it's trying to build a transnational network of uh, American and Japanese anti-war activists. Um, can you tell us about uh, Beheiren, about its significance um, and how it fits into this history of the new left uh, and new left protests that we've been talking about? And in particular, I was really, I was really fascinated uh, with the sort of Okinawan connection that you make here, in addition to putting it into the, the larger Cold War context with the U.S., um, you know, both individual Americans, uh, the military, the government, etc. Um, so, can you tell us about Beheiren? Okay. Um, just uh, before going to Beheiren, can I uh, go to Okinawa first? Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Uh, the Okinawa situation is very different. I like the one thing that missing from the history of nineteen sixties in Japan is Okinawa. And that was like you know one of the things that I wanted to deal uh, in my book, and uh, even like uh, ample the dominant knowledge of ample is really we have like this image like Chelsea mentioned like image of like you know uh, students snake dancing in front of the diet, but actually uh, there were massive protests in Okinawa too, and uh, we kind of like you know sweeps that part out of the memory of 1960 ample. And uh, it's funny because as Chelsea was mentioning a lot about uh, female students and how they were portrayed in the history and like historiography of female uh, student activism. And that's really uh, sometimes like have a kind of like overlapping theme with uh, Okinawa because they were seen as ideologically naive by U.S. Uh, officials. So the U.S. military occupying in Okinawa felt that they had to block com- communistic uh, thought coming from mainland to na- ideologically naive Okinawa because they don't want to have any peace campaign in Okinawa, which was really heavily militarized island at that time. So Okinawa is not just like you know side story in this. It's a like, century of Japanese 60s. And 
also, so like you know, the Ven- during the Vietnam War, it was like the most important base for the United States. Um, I think Thomas Heavens in a fire uh, in a in a book about uh, like uh, Vietnam War in Japan, he really portrays like how important Okinawa base was, and uh, the Okinawa became really unique role, play a unique role at the point of convergence for transnational radicalism because a lot of American GI stationed and uh, many black Americans as well. And uh, they experienced the feeling of solidarity with people in Okinawa, identifying with them as oppressed peoples. And Okinawa people inspired by the black liberation movement and also like African-Americans in Okinawa began revolting against racially discriminatory practice of U.S. military and the U.S. occupation. And uh, not only Okinawa, but throughout Japan, U.S. military bases became um, sort of the um, outpost of, like seen as outpost of American imperialism. And the U.S. military base was important because it really created the space where transnational radicalism became uh, facilitated and the flows of new anti-imperialist ideas converged. Uh, and uh, also like personal encounters between American and Japanese activists uh, around the base, through the base. And it's funny because I think uh, one of the Black Panther members came to Asaka Saitama Air Base, uh, Saitama military base, and they used a nearby radio to spread the uh, Black Panther uh, message uh, to uh, Black and, and you know, American GIs uh, stationed within the base. So they were like, you know, the U.S. military base became really the uh, convergent point of 60s radicalism during the Vietnam War. And Behenen provided the, the another different types of transnational activists. They organized uh, an international conference. They invited uh, Howard Jean and uh, uh, AJ Mast, their famous uh, pacifist and peace activist. And they also invited SDS uh, the student groups, student activists in the United States, and like you know, they are from other countries as well. So there was like a, two different types of like sort of um, the internationalism or like transnational activists that I talk in the book. Um, yeah, the Nathan, um, what were the other questions? Oh no, so I, I wanted to uh, you know think a little bit about um, the. Sig- not just the significance of Behaden and sort of how it fits into the, the history. And, and by the way, thank you for uh, really forefronting uh, Okinawa in there, uh, Okinawa in that. Uh, but sort of, but, but thinking about, you know, what, what Behaden uh, means uh, to the larger history, as well as uh, what was the, the role of um, the U.S. in all this, uh, individual Americans, uh, the military, the government, um, and sort of how that all how that all fits together into this picture of this kind of last uh, major turning point for uh, the Japanese New Left, in particular the campus-based New Left, right? Because you know one of the things that you wrote about in the book um, is you know that by this time you know Zengakuren is very interested in um, seeking 
anti-imperial solidarity with radicals in the West, which is quite different from what Behaden is doing, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, the older Makoto, who was the main organizers of Beheren, like, tried to avoid such kind of leftist factionalism. He was more looking into, uh, I think he said somewhere, maybe, uh, maybe my memory is wrong, but like, I think he said, like, you know, more of like, you know, uh, flat, organ- like, not really like tightly organized, but like more, um, I think he was, like his experience in the United States in being Harvard uh, exchange student in the fifties, really tried to bring American style, I would say like new left style uh, activism to Japan, like not really hierarchical, not factionalism, but more like you know the people's movement that he thought was American, and uh, the like in my book I talked about Beheren in the sense that like in you know, how the Vietnam brought all these different actors uh, in, into Japan, also like you know exchange of ideas, but. Um, I wasn't really a beheading expert in the sense that I, you know, I didn't really uh, look into beheading's significance. But I think I would say, like, he really tried, like, you know, beheading played, uh, like, important role in bringing uh, radical movements from United States or, like, from other countries to Japan. Um, sorry, Mason, I can't really oh, that's, talk. That's, that's totally fine. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I wanted to um, I wanted to move us toward uh, you know beginning beginning to wrap up here because I think we've covered uh, you know, most of the really most important um, you know, historical landmarks in mm-hmm. thinking about the the student movement um, and its relationship to the Cold War. Uh, so before we before we sort of get to uh, you know uh, famous last remarks, uh, I, I did want to ask. Um, you know, Chelsea, I, I, I think we sort of touched on um, the some of the ironies of, uh, in terms of, uh, you know, gender politics within the new left movement. Uh, and, you know, we had talked about, you know, possibly sort of uh, circling back around to Sananao, which is, you know, uh, the uh, anti-Tachikawa base movement in the 50s, where, uh, you know, I think I think both of you mentioned in your books that uh, the the gender dynamics are already starting, you know, at, at that stage, right? Of uh, women doing the sort of care work uh, and you know men being out there in the in the front lines. Um, and I, I just I'm curious whether you had any sort of uh, sort of follow up in thinking about this, in particular in light of uh, what uh, Naoko has just said about how you know student activists and, and and not just student activists but leftist activists in Japan are more successful in some ways at breaking down these sort of national or ethnic borders um, than they are at, at yeah, overcoming well, some of these disparities. Well, I would actually say that 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 success even in in breaking down you know national borders, I would say, must be evaluated very closely. Something that that I discovered actually rather late in my research and that I rather regret, and I I hope somebody, (laughs) I'm a little tired of this subject, so I'm hoping that somebody hears this and takes this topic and runs with it. I'm not sure I have the energy for it at the moment, but something I found really fascinating is that in the 1970s, when you get more of a women's liberation, 
kind of th- that that moment before women fully separate female participants fully separate from the new left when they're still going to new left meetings, but they're making uh, speeches uh, critiquing the male chauvinism and sexism of the new left. Um, that space for them within the new left to to articulate those views was actually made by exchange students from Asia, primarily China, who were in Japan and were were criticizing the new left in Japan for its ethno-nationalism. And I think that there there is something about um, the way that uh, what is political action and what is not political action and who speaks on behalf of whom is this thorny ongoing issue, I think, in these uh, in these stories. And I think that, um, yeah, an elite group of students saying that they are a vanguard or that they represent the proletariat um, is problematic. Um, student movement uh, activists, new lefts, certainly talked about certain issues like regarding uh, ethnic minorities in Japan, um, like Burakamin or Zainichi. Um, but there's not a significant outreach to Zainichi communities, you know, resident Korean communities. And actually, um, uh, Sayaka Chatani, I know, is working on this right now on thinking about what what it even means to have a, you know, why is there no civil rights movement in a in a sense that's focused on the Zainichi? There is a is definitely inspiration drawn from um, the the civil rights movement in uh in the United States, people are very inspired by groups like SNCC and then by Black Power. It's very invigorating. Um, but again, I'm not sure, uh, you know, um, finding something fascinating or inspirational is not necessarily the same thing as uh, maybe if given the chance, actually allowing, uh, you know, Black Power activists. I know I know that some visited Japan, but, um, you know, one visit is not necessarily uh, does not necessarily break down kind of eth- ethno-nationalist assumptions, maybe, right, too. Um, so I thought that was very interesting that exchange students in Japan, and there, there, there are documents about this, so I encourage people to look a bit more at this as well. Um, and, uh, and I think that, that this kind of continues, this speaking on behalf of people or this idea that, and we see this not just in Japan, but this idea that whoever is the one speaking or whoever's name is written on certain um, texts that become influential, uh, they're the important people of a movement. But I think I would say that a social movement is by definition, um, uh, requires a group of people. And uh, I think that um, in doing this research, I, I really kind of came to realize that I needed to be more sensitive to uh, not just the leaders and uh, not just um, the the texts that they they also left, but how to evaluate um, the fact that those uh, leaders and those texts in an ostensibly leaderless movement too, right, um, were only made possible and disseminated through uh, the efforts of many, many people and that that work was often, you know, relegated or was considered uh, to be relegated to... Um, uh, women and was less valued. Uh, that's something that that historians kind of have to think about too, because we often pursue stories and, and texts through individual people. 
Um, and there's a lot of, of people who don't make their way into the texts, right? Yeah. Um, so I wanted to uh, sort of pick up on a couple of things you said. So first, you know, I wanted to thank you for the uh, second plug for uh, previous podcasts. You already plugged uh, Nick Kapoor and uh, now Saya Kachitani. Uh, loyal listeners will uh, have already listened. Disloyal listeners can go Google them uh, or check check far back in your in your feeds. Um, but also, you know, uh, sort of this idea of, of uh, which I want to pick up on in, in just a second of sort of future directions for research. Um, but one of the, you know, one of the sort of conundrums that that you picked up on there, Chelsea, which I thought was particularly interesting. Uh, is the, uh, in addition to the historiographical problem, which I think you're absolutely right about, right, that we need to be sensitive to that. Um, but this idea that, you know, that the Japanese, uh, you know, campus-based new left and the new left more generally is also struggling, not just, uh, you know, as, as Naoko is sort of pointing out, uh, against, uh, you know, largely uh, American imperialism, but it's also struggling with its own history of imperialism, right? You know, as, uh, you know, as Japanese, right, in that sense, um, and how that creates these uh, omissions, right? Um, and sort of who gets to speak, it gets to be, you know, young, mostly male, uh, almost exclusively Japanese. And so, you know, there's this sort of uh, you know, multiple layers of uh, representation and also of sort of misrepresentation and non-representation and sort of invisibility uh, that are built in in there. Uh, and I'm glad that you uh, sort of brought that up and also, you know, gave us this idea for uh, some future directions for research, uh, which, of course, I'm going to ask you about in a minute. But before I do that, uh, I did want to ask, um, you know, about the uh, long-term fallout uh, of uh, the the history that both of you have talked about um, since the since mostly the sixties, really, it's just what we're talking about. Um, so now, can, can you tell us what you think the the long term fallout of uh, the history that you're writing about this this sort of Cold War history has been in uh, shaping Japan, um, both you know, domestically, sort of at home in Japan, and also uh, in its place in the world. Uh, okay, um, I think. It's, uh, I believe that it's difficult to understand how the discussion with U.S.-Japan alliance, in particular the AMPO, like uh, U.S.-Japan security treaty, without looking at the role the U.S. played in post-war Japan and also post-war Asia. And uh, I wanted to demonstrate that uh, how the U.S.-Japan alliance is not just about bilateral governmental relationship, also shaped the U.S. society, uh, no, I mean, sorry, uh, Japanese society in significant ways, including homogenizing the concept of democracy and security, which remain dominant to this day. This is the story of how Japan accommodated the U.S. power during the Korea, uh, during the Cold War. And, uh, like, and like, you know, when, in terms of Japanese student, uh, in terms of history of Japanese student movement, um, I will say it was not really communism or anti-Americanism, even though their language remained heavily Marxism and, uh, you know, they attacked American imperialism. But it's really, you know, it's it wasn't not really like communism or anti-Americanism that prompted the student to protest against the U.S. Cold War policy. It was their democratic values, which the U.S. had popularized during the war and early phase of occupation. And that really led them to challenge the Cold War America. So in a way, the Japanese student left 
remained loyal to democratic and demilitarized ethos the U.S. had promoted during the uh, war and early post-war years. Yeah, I think this is uh, one of the the, the really fascinating uh, arguments that you're making in in the book, um, and I'm glad we uh, got to you know rehash well, that. Well, I'm going to circle back uh, you, to Chelsea? to talk a little bit about why I to to revisit why I lo- began this research. Um, so uh, again, I was I was recently uh, interviewing and interested in in knowing more about um, some of the young people who are involved in Fridays for Future um, and Extinction Rebellion in Japan. Um, And so I was uh, interviewing a few um, participants and, uh, you know, I asked them, I mean, why do you think that that it's hard to get people at your protests, Um, which is something that they had said. And, uh, you know, I heard that story again, that will Japanese People just essentially, they don't like conflict, they don't like confrontation, and, you know, it's a harmonious society. And, um, uh, you know, this is the straw man that won't blow away. Like, you would think if you can find one example of that not being true, and then it would go away, one hopes, or at least I hoped naively, and I wrote a whole book hoping to to blow away this, this uh, you know, this fixed idea. Um, so uh, it's it's so enduring. And so rather than try to blow the idea away, maybe I can say that um, I think that what I researched and what I wrote about, about the Japanese New Left, I think helps us understand why um, the history has gotten written out. And I think it has to do with um, I, the, the external pressures that led to the decline of the new left and that framed it as as very extreme, right? So the kind of police PR campaign and also the mass media, um, uh, which which I think has has made people very nervous that it might stop with like, might stop with a little, it might start with a little street protest, but you're going to end up killing your comrades in a mountain lodge, you know? So there's this kind of like, like a similar to kind of like, well, if you read Marx, pretty soon you're going to have a gulag, you know, like, um, so there, there is this strong kind of uh, uh, sense of this, which is why, again, um, people who, you know, young people or older people whose politics I, I might identify as really radical insist on calling themselves liberals, right? So, so that's part of the story. And then also, I, I'm just not sure people believe in the effectiveness of street protest in Japan. Um, and then also there are the, the internal dynamics uh, that, uh, that, that I identified. And, and I, I think it would be good to look more at sort of the ethno-nationalistic implications of this. But in terms of the gendered dynamics of the student movement, um, many of the women who went on to do uh, more kind of feminism activism, women's liberation activism, are incredibly angry. And they have no desire to see or work with uh, the men that they that they you know, engage in this, so, you know, co-ed revolution with. Um, and uh, so uh, that is still um, uh, this, uh, uh, this very divisive issue. And I'm not really sure that there's a, um, a an adequate uh, integration of gender issues with 
leftist or progressive politics in Japan. I think that um, womenomics, we hear a lot about this womenomics rhetoric, which is a very liberal or even neoliberal discourse about empowering women, elite women in, you know, companies and, and, uh, you know, on uh, corporate boards or, or in high level political uh, positions. But, uh, you know, this, this liberal feminism is, is very attractive and shiny and alluring. Um, but it, it also does not address, you know, so many daily life issues um, that come back to uh, care work, that come back to care work being feminized and looked down upon and undervalued and underpaid and precarious. And, and so I, I think we really do need to see a gender analysis alongside um, a, a radical analysis that means looking at the root of things and asking where where money comes from where money goes where power comes from where power goes um uh, and i think that this history is important to understand that aversion to talking about radical politics but also to understand about a possible alternative genealogy uh, for a new kind of feminist radical politics yeah you know i i um I was I was listening to you and I was thinking you know it's uh, you know the, the curse of 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 maybe being a, a historian or you know being in the humanities more generally is that you sort of pendulum back and forth between the intensely depressing and you know somewhat ho- hopeful uh, and I think we've managed to do that quite nicely here uh, at the end of the podcast um, I'm going to put you on the spot here Chelsea since you uh, brought up the uh, mm-hmm. question of future. Uh, directions in research, uh, and I know you said you're not going to uh, specifically pick up on the, mm. that, that that the issue that you, you talked about. So it made me yeah, curious. Yeah, so is I it that you're I working on uh, I thought I was going to do coal mining and women in coal mining communities, which which did originate with this project. Um, there was a whole section of this book that got cut cut out about the year long um, strike at Mike at the Mitsui Mike coal mines in Kyushu. Um, because uh, the role of, you know, so-called housewife activism or blue-collar housewife activism was really interesting uh, there. But it just didn't fit into this particular story. So I thought I would look more at coal mining. And then I got really interested in uh, energy policy, uh, kind of um, what I call, or, you know, extractive communities. Um, And then I got really interested in the shift from coal to petroleum and the rise of petrochemicals and uh, and Japan um, having more uh, stringent environmental regulations in response to several um, uh, issues regarding industrial pollution, but then doing overseas uh, kind of pollution export uh, and the petrochemical industry and the petroleum extraction industry is really big there. And um, this is quite a vague sort of uh, intuition at this point, but I'm really curious to think about um, the 1960s, 1970s, uh, the rise of the multinational corporation, uh, Japanese capital in the world, and these vast global um, production chains, but also how they impact communities in places ranging from uh, Omuta, this coal mining community, to Yokaichi, which is a petrochemical community. to uh, places in Louisiana, right? African-American communities in Louisiana, to places like Finland, where uh, Finland developed its petrochemical 
uh, industry uh, employing the most cutting-edge clean technology exported by Japan in the 1970s. And uh, it links uh, Japan very closely with the Middle East, which is something that um, uh, which is you know, part of this reason that Japan maintains rather close ties to Iran in spite of U.S. opposition to that. Um, and also, uh, you know, influences the story of what uh, Japan is doing in uh, in Africa, like in Nigeria. Um, uh, and Nigeria is very uh, both interested in Japan because Japan is a non-Western country, but is also wary of Japan because of the way that uh, Japan also um, continues to trade with South Africa and is part of the apartheid regime. Regimes. So, so I don't know these all these stories. Um, have got me really jazzed at looking at something I know nothing about, which is why I can talk about it so glibly. I'm sure the next time you talk with me, I'll be talking about one aspect of this wide-ranging thing. Um, Maybe I'll come back to the student movement. I think that thinking about activism and thinking about um, communities and community mobilization and gender will be part of my next project. Um, But I, I think I'm a little tired of this particular set of sources. And I'm very excited to see what another generation of scholars interested in this might, might find. And it also sounds like you'll be uh, sort of uh, jumping into to, uh, Naoko's uh, province here, you know, doing global diplomacy and uh, thinking about uh, these international relations questions. Um, so how about you, Naoko? What are you, what are you up to these days? What does your future research look like? Um, I think, I'm thinking about like actually I started uh, doing some project on uh, Japanese workers employed by U.S. military in Japan or somewhere, <laughs> and uh, uh, it's when the Japan Japan uh, regained the sovereignty again after uh, in 1952. There were about like 380,000 people employed by the U.S. military in Japan and. Uh, I learned like there were pretty like active like unions of uh, U.S. Uh, unions of these uh, workers, and they are affiliated with Sohyo, like Socialist Party. So I'm just like so like my question is like you know you were like working for Empire and like and like try you know it's funny because like they're like they were really like active in like demanding like you know United States to like don't fire us or like, you know increase the wage and there was a one instance that where like you know the maids like female maids uh, household maids uh, employed in Tachikawa Airbase uh, went on strike against uh, like you know their employer U.S. military so I'm kind of like I, I'm still like you know this is like, my beginning of uh so I don't know where it goes, but probably like I think it's really interesting to see not like you know challenging or attacking U.S. Uh, Cold War or like you know uh, or like siding with them like LDP, but like in between that there was like sort of like you know I would say like you know negotiating with the empire. <laughs> so. That's your title. That's a great title, Negotiating the Empire. <laughs> yeah, well, those, those, those are both. Um, I don't have any content yet, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that's the fun of new research, right? And I mean, they both sound like fantastic projects um, and also like brand new projects. Uh, 
So I know it won't be right away, but I I do hope that uh, when your next uh, big projects turn into big books, uh, that you will come back on the podcast with us. Okay, thank you. I mean, this is uh, this is. (laughs) I don't even know what the future will look like, but yeah, well, we're we're historians. It's not our job. (laughs) That's true. That's true. (laughs) Yes, yes. Uh, That's yeah. Uh, So let's leave it there. Uh, Thank you so much. Thank you so much, thank Nathan, so and thank much. you, Marco. Yep. Oh, thank you, Chelsea and Nathan. I really enjoyed. I learned a lot too. Thank you.